Hi, I am Marisa Dima. I'm a researcher in creative technology and games design at Brunel University London. I'm delighted to welcome you to this podcast about mixed reality applications in cultural heritage. I've started this podcast to explore in more depth the challenges and opportunities in designing and developing mixed reality experiences for cultural heritage. Some of them emerged during an online symposium that I ran in June 2020 that brought together heritage industry professionals, researchers and technology developers. Today our guest is an experienced curator and educator with 15 years of experience leading exhibitions, public programs and learning in museums in Hong Kong, Ireland and the UK. She is also a lecturer on museum studies courses in the UK, Ireland and Hong Kong and is currently the head of learning and interpretation at English Heritage. Welcome Dr. Dominique Bouchard. Thank you for um, for for coming to talk for this um, for this episode. Um, I'd like just to start by asking you to introduce yourself and uh, you know what you do. Sure. Uh, well, my name is Dominique Bouchard. I'm head of learning and interpretation at English Heritage, and what that means is that my teams uh, deliver all of the temporary exhibitions and panel schemes. We do the guidebooks and audio tours, family trials, and other kinds of interactives on site, as well as uh, contemporary arts commissioning and national youth engagement, and also the learning programs. So it's a lot of the, the things that when you visit one of our sites, either digitally or in person, um, my teams are, the, are some of the people that you know, help put together the things that help unlock the sites for people, you know, that, that will help you learn about the history of the sites or, or why they were significant in the past and, and what their significance is today. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and can you tell me a bit more about you know the, the role of digital digital interpretation um, nowadays? Um, uh, of course, would like to ask you a bit more about you know the use of immersive technologies more into into the, the discussion. But uh, just keep, if you can give an overview of um, you know of where where digital interpretation is right now uh, in in the UK in, in heritage and in particular in historic sites maybe. I think it's one of the things that's happened, um, I think, due to the coronavirus is that we've all been a lot more interested and we've all been a lot more creative and I think probably a lot more, a lot less risk averse when it comes to digital and in relation to interpreting our sites. I think traditionally, you know, most people um, when they visit a heritage site or even a museum for that matter will get, um, you know, an audio guide and that's a really simple type of digital interpretation that's been available at heritage sites and museums for a really long time. Um, but you know, more recently, uh, a lot of uh, sites have been incorporating different types of digital interactives, whether they're games that you can play on a touch screen or thinking about um, uh, interactive bots. So there are some, sort, some interactives that'll allow you to tweet or, or Facebook message a site uh, with a particular bit of information or a question and, uh, and an artificial intelligence might get back to you with the answer to your question or might, might present you with some kind of a challenge. And those kinds of, of digital interactives, I think, can be really helpful in, in opening a site up and letting people explore in a kind of choose your own adventure kind of way. I think um, when it comes to 
digital interpretation on site, one of the things that we're really aware of in a heritage environment, which may be a bit different from an art gallery or, or a museum, is that the, the walls of the buildings that, were, that you may be wandering around are you know, historically significant. They may be hundreds of years old. Whereas in most museums, you know, the walls of, a, of an art gallery or wall of a museum is a place where objects are either you know, hung or displayed for people to see, to, to look at. In, in heritage sites, the walls themselves are, are the history. And so we're really mindful of not wanting to put a lot of panel schemes or a lot of physical interpretation on them because, you know, every little bit of, of wall of a castle that you cover up is putting a barrier between the visitor and the heritage. And similarly, I think there's been a, a reticence um, or hesitance uh, on the part of heritage interpretation professionals to not want to institute um, or implement a new barrier for people to contend with. So, you know, we want people to, we want, we want to eliminate all of the barriers that exist between people and heritage. And so, in, you know, when, when we're talking about digital technology, we need to be very careful that we're not creating yet another barrier or, or putting a barrier in, or in where there wouldn't normally be one between people and the history that we're trying to connect to. Uh, for a lot of heritage institutions, you know, for the, the audio guide is great because it doesn't prevent your eyes, it doesn't block anything. But equally, you know, they tend to be very didactic and they tend to be really, um, you know, a, a one a, a sort of a one-sided story that gets told and other types of digital technology that we're looking at now, whether it's augmented reality or even virtual reality on sites allows people a completely new way of experiencing um, the history and heritage that may be around them or maybe a way for them to experience history and heritage from their homes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that's, that's great. So since you, 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 know, you mentioned about like augmented and, and, and virtual reality, um, from your experience, and, and feel free to mention any specific projects you might have, um, um, you know, uh, contribute to or being part of. Um, how how do you think that immersive technologies can can give depth to interpretation, to digital interpretation, and give something different than um, the digital interpretation that's used so far? Uh, and as well as what do you see on site? Like uh, I don't know if I can call it location based, like. The, the physical, the analog means anyway of interpretation for, for a historic site? Well, I think that a lot of times it can be really difficult to imagine what a site looked like in the past. And, and for me, one of the exciting opportunities that augmented reality offers is the potential for people to be able to compare what was there before with what's there now. And, and one of the things I think is really exciting uh, is that lots of sites were used in a really kind of full and robust way, even though they were also partly ruined. So for example, uh, this past weekend, I was at Portchester Castle, which is one of English Heritage's castles on the south coast uh, near Portsmouth. And um, I was visiting with a couple of artists who are working on a new theater production that we are, um, that we're commissioning and that, that will be staged in, uh, in 2021 as part of our big national youth engagement program. And one of the things that struck them and that I think is really interesting is that Port Chester started out as a Roman fort. Um, it was a really important place uh, for, important strategic place for, for the Romans. 
and the outline or the, the curtain wall of the fort that you see now, it's kind of a square shape, is, is really the, the original Roman wall of the fort. At some point in the Middle Ages, that fort was obviously no longer Roman and augmented um, by, uh, it, you know, by, it, by, I think it was Henry II. Um, and the, the castle, the original Roman walls were, were kind of built up and a new castle keep was built and there were some additional elements that were added in the subsequent centuries. So by the time but by the time Portchester Castle is kind of in its heyday and the period that we were interested in, which was the 18th, late 18th and early 19th century, when Portchester was used as a prisoner of war depot by the, by the, the, by the British forces during the Napoleonic Wars, a lot of the castle had, had somewhat fallen into ruin. But actually the castle itself, um, to look at it, it looked a little bit ruinous, but actually it was in full use and being... Um, and, and being kind of developed and built upon. So one of the things that we're looking at and we're exploring in relation to Portchester is how can we give people that sense of understanding of what the castle looked like? You know, I, I think when we think about the castles in the past, we think of kind of pristine structures that look a bit like real versions of Lego castles that we might have built when we were children or that, you know, the Lego kits that you buy with kind of perfectly square and perfectly rectangle um, edges and corners and all of the crenellations of the, on the top of the, the towers are all intact. Whereas the reality was probably that these places were much more ruinous looking than we see them today. And one of the things that I think could be actually really, really revolutionary would be to be able to offer people that kind of an insight when they're on site. So rather than picking up a, a kind of an AR or a digital device and expecting to see one thing, what you're confronted with is probably a much more historically accurate version of, of the past. Um, and I think that can be really surprising. And I think that digital for me is somewhat at its best when it offers an insight into uh, a physical space or a physical thing that you wouldn't necessarily be able to, to completely understand or experience um, you know, when you're unless without being there. And, and certainly, um, you know, we're not, a, we don't, we don't kind of fix up our castles to look like they would have looked when they were first built. But this idea of newness, I think is, is something is, is really, is really compelling. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so you, it's all, it's also with augmented reality, for example, it's more difficult to do that. That would probably be more something for, for virtual reality, like a reconstruction of a whole, of a whole room, for example. Um, but castles also were very rich in in, in objects and, and people who were um, living uh, in there. And, and I guess there is um, the opportunity maybe to look at this uh, other non-tangible heritage, no? In um, through the um, through the through through technology like augmented reality, for example. I completely agree. I think that to be able to fill these spaces that existed with sound and with, you know, you can't do it with AR, but with smell and to, to give people a sense of the real and, and kind of rich environments and, and sort of rich communities and, and life that, that existed in these spaces, I think is really, is really important. Um, I think, again, you know, we tend to, when we visit one of these places, you tend to be, you might be the only person in the room and, and it all looks very sparse and it all looks very um, 
kind of pristine and empty. But in reality, every square inch of a castle would likely have been jam-packed with some kind of an activity, whether it was blacksmithing or whether it was market or storage. Um, and I think to, in order to give people that really authentic understanding of what a space is like, augmented reality, especially if you can integrate sound um, and, and in video offers a really, really important um, and really exciting potential. Mm -hmm. So from, from your perspective, um, uh, how can this uh, technology, either virtual or augmented or mixed reality, um, um, as we call it now, be deployed um, effectively and sustainably uh, within the heritage sector? I think there are some real challenges that we haven't managed to overcome yet. You know, a lot of our sites don't have good um, Wi-Fi coverage, for example, because they're in remote places. And, or they, and, and even for the sites um, that do have data coverage, a lot of the data network or the data coverage isn't really great or isn't necessarily good enough to support, to support a kind of a, you know, a lot of data being streamed in real time, being streamed to somebody's handheld device. On the other hand, I think we can't ignore the potential of being able to put control over, over your own kind of heritage experience and the, the kinds of things that you might be interested in into the hands of our visitors. And I think that, uh, that what we are trying to do with some of the um, projects that have come out of our work in, as a result of responding to coronavirus is thinking much more um, in a much more agile way about how to do that. So for example, um, you know, one of the things that we had to do because uh, in relation to coronavirus was initially pull all of our handheld audio guides from our sites, partly because we, we weren't sure whether we'd be able to hand them out safely to visitors, but also we thought that visitors wouldn't necessarily want to pick up a handheld device and then kind of put it back. So we turned all of our audio tours into a bring your own device format. And we did that in, by taking sort of a two prong approach. Um, and one strand of the activity, we're using a progressive web app so that people can stream the data directly to their phone. And we also have the, the audio tours available as a, as a pre-downloadable um, tour from a native app. And that's offered a, a lot of flexibility to visitors. And actually we've realized that the take up for these things is really great because um, people are because we're asking people to use their phones on sites and previously that's kind of been seen as a as an insurmountable barrier in the heritage sector people are very we've we've long been told by data and reports and and, and lots of research that visitors don't want to see the heritage site through their phone and so we've been pretty shy and pretty reticent about um, well not reticent reluctant to, to deploy handheld things which operate on a bring your own device basis. Actually, what we've seen through coronavirus, whether there has actually been a change in what people are willing to do, or, or actually we just didn't really realize that people were open to using their own devices in the first instance, um, is see a, a real openness and a real desire to engage with multimedia content in particular in the heritage environment. So, We've, we've learned from the, the bring your own device model where people seem to be pretty happy using their own phones. And we've actually started adding additional interpretation uh, at, at our sites, deploying multimedia assets that we've had um, so that people can, can engage with them and see them and learn about them whilst also on site. So where previously 
this material would have only been accessible. Well, I guess it was accessible through your phone anyway, but we would have promoted it as, as material that you engage with from home and as part of a pre-planning pre activity or after you visited a site and you want to know more. It's kind of that, that deep dive content, content that, that a lot of people um, like to, to look into once they've had their interest in a particular thing peaked. Previously, that material's really been only available off-site where we've targeted that way through the, our new strand of work, which we're calling Agile Interpretation, we are creating um, very small panels that uh, offer the opportunity for visitors to delve more deeply into the stories of a site through multimedia resources, just using a QR code. So again, it's not particularly sophisticated technology, but it's allowed us to, be, to think much in, a, in a new way about the content, the digital material we already have, and we're beginning now to think about how we're going to start commissioning new material to operate um, on site, uh, you know, digitally through either QR codes or different kinds of, um, of visual recognition tags. Um, I'm not convinced that QR codes is a, is a great way for all of this to operate, but in a, in a kind of a quick, as a quick fix um, that, that assisted us while we were trying to get our sites open after they were all closed, um, it's been really, really enormously helpful. Mm. That's, that's very interesting actually this this change in what visitors are you know are willing to do because of how the the coronavirus uh, situation has changed how in, we interact <laughs> uh, with um, with the heritage site in this case and um, can I ask in this um, at this point how did you find that visitors were um, very much engaged with the website or an app or the or the app while the, the sites were closed during this period we're still waiting for all of the data but we definitely saw that during uh during the closure period so let me let me backtrack a second so on the 17th of march we closed all english heritage sites that have a that can be closed so there are about 420 english heritage sites across england um uh, the, I guess the majority of them are free to enter sites, many of which don't really have a barrier. So they're just kind of a fee, they're just sort of um, objects or, or ruins or um, mounds in fields that, that you can visit. Um, but there are, you know, well over a hundred sites that are small, um, that don't get that many visitors, but have a, a staff, a small staff working there or very large sites and very complex sites like Stonehenge and Dover Castle. All of our sites um, that could be closed were closed on the 17th of March, and uh, and and that was really a, a big. That was that's the main way, of course, people, you know, learn about English heritage sites and learn about the history of of, of England. So having them closed is, was really very damaging to anybody who wanted to be able to learn about these places by going to them. And so we we quickly uh, restructured our work program to create, to ensure that we had history pages for all of the sites that, um, for, really for all of our sites, um, which we didn't have before lockdown, but we now do. Um, we, uh, we also created a lot more content, which was, which was focused particularly on our smaller sites that, uh, that were, that without a lot of digital content, you wouldn't be able necessarily to unlock them. A site like Stonehenge has a really has a has a very a vast number of, of articles on our website and images, and there's some really cool um, 
360 views there. We've got this brilliant page, which is called Stonehenge Skyscape, which lets you kind of experience Stonehenge from the inside of the stone circle in an immersive way on any day of the year. So at any time of day as well, it's really cool. Um, but other sites don't have that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of critical mass of digital material. And so we really wanted to make sure that people had as much access to our sites as possible. And that meant a big digital push to, uh, to kind of bridge the gap where there were gaps in our history pages or things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and initially, we thought that we would also be able to deploy a lot of new interpretation at our free to enter sites, most of which remained open throughout the lockdown. And so from there, we started to think about new ways that we could um, support digital engagement. And one of the other big strands of activity that came out of all of this was a focus on home learning. And I think that one of the areas where digital technology probably has the greatest potential that is untapped is in the area of, of off-site digital learning. So a lot of our um, schools programs will take place on site. They're really dynamic, lots of interactions. Um, you know, pupils get to do all kinds of really cool things like flint napping and learning about um, Neolithic skills and, and things like that. But once you, once school visits are off the cards, whether because schools um, are suspended because of coronavirus or whether because um, it's not safe uh, in a particular for schools to visit sites for, for various reasons, we started thinking about how we can deliver on our charitable mission to deliver education and learning. And so from there, we started thinking much more robustly about what it would look like to have digital driven learning experiences. So at the moment, even though we're planning for schools to be able to come back on sites from the 1st of September for school visits, we're also planning to turn uh, many of our discovery visits, which are the expert led workshops into virtual classroom activities so that the experts can lead these activities from uh, over the internet for and be streamed into classrooms and so they can lead interactive sessions that way or for them to be able to operate for pupils who are learning from home in case there's another wave and schools are suspended again. And I think that is where um, we're, we're investing a lot of time and energy into thinking about a kind of a much more agile and much more nimble approach to, to schools engagement and to learning generally. One of our uh, big, most successful projects over the, the course of the lockdown was something called History Lessons Live, where um, we had a, a CBBC presenter called Ben Shires um, do a live streamed interview with one of our curators or historians about a subject which was very much tied into the curriculum. And during these interviews, um, they used footage and visuals and, and collections items from you know, from our collections to illustrate these lessons and uh, children and families were able to ask questions in real time and have them answered during this lesson. So it was really amazing. And we're looking at expanding that program at the moment because we feel like it's a great way for us to be able to, to expand our, our learning offer, but it also creates this really exciting um, uh, way for us to be deploying our digital assets and making the most of them for, for learning. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, I'll, I'll, let me get back a little bit into the actual site. Um, I had a, a, like two questions on that. Uh, when you, you know, we said that there was this issue with the audio guides and now you, uh, you ask visitors to use more and more their mobile phones. 
Um, so there is there like a move more towards uh, own devices, like bring your own device and have this experience uh, in inside the historic site uh, as, a, as a measure uh, against similar situations like we have right now with the coronavirus. And how does that, which um, inherently includes the digital, changes interpretation and how you think about interpretation in the site? Well, the answer to your first question is absolutely. I think we've all been a bit hesitant to, to say that a bring your own device model is gonna absolutely be a core part of the way we do digital interpretation on site until now, because it does place a large burden on the visitor to actually have a device with them that they can use. And, and we want to make sure that everything that we do is as accessible as possible. And so if your visitor has to have a really, has to have a data plan that has a lot of data or, or, you know, and, or has to stream things or has to have a certain kind of phone, that can really be um, a challenge or, or a big barrier, especially for older people who don't necessarily have the same kind of um, technology or don't feel as confident with it, or overseas visitors who often don't want to use their data plan abroad because it's really expensive. Having said that, I think what COVID has shown us is the appetite in local, in, is for sort of domestic tourism and the domestic market, certainly, for, for engaging and accessing additional content um, in, a, in a way which is sort of personally tailored. You know, if there's a QR code somewhere, you don't have to, you know, scan the QR code to get the video of the curator talking. You can just read a panel and get some information. So it's allowing us to provide new layers of digital depth. So, so I think from that perspective, it's been a real, um, it's, it's really challenged our, our perception, our notions of what was gonna work on site. And I think it's probably challenged them and, and rewritten the book a little bit for us. So we are much more open to that way more than ever before. In terms of how that affects our thinking about digital interpretation on site, I also think it's been a little bit revolutionary. You know, there are, we need to be very careful though and don't see digital technology as a way to um, you know, avoid cutting the amount of text or the number of words that we put on a panel. You know, just because um, you know, in, in, anybody who's done exhibitions will, will be, have been in the, the situation where you, you, want, you need a, a sort of 120 words in a particular section and you'll be working with the curators and historians and they'll give you like 600 words <laughs> and it just doesn't fit. And so what we don't want is for digital technology to sort of sweep up the additional, you know, 400 words or 450 words that, um, that couldn't be trimmed to fit onto the panel. The digital needs to work in its own terms and in its own right. You know, the, we have to be conscious of the of the benefits of the, but also the limitations of digital and the kind of biases um, that digital that digital brings along with it. So, for example, you know, it's not necessarily a great format to looking at for looking at really minute detail for something. But I think what we can be thinking about is, okay, if I'm on this site and I'm looking at, say, Revo Abbey, which is this magnificent abbey uh, in in the in Yorkshire. Um, which was destroyed during the, the dissolution of the monasteries, it is really incredible. And the architectural details are absolutely stunning. But when you're standing on the ground, you can't see all of the, all of the, the beauty of the architecture, the majesty of the monument up close. 
um, because the, the the tops of some of these um, of some of the structures are you know 30, 40 feet, 50 feet high. But if we could think about using digital technology as a way to you know unlock to kind of bridge that distance to bring those things down to scale so that somebody while they're standing on site can really get a, a very good sense of the uh, of the detail of the monument the detail of the architecture so i think we need to be thinking about you know what does digital allow us to do that other types of interpretation don't allow us to do i don't think that otherwise i think we risk sort of fetishizing digital as a as a format so why would i put it on a, somebody's computer you know phone screen or tablet screen when I can just as well put it on a physical interpretation panel, that feels like a that feels like a, a you know not a great way of using digital. But you know what you can't do on on a on a panel is zoom into things, allow people to to find a, a sort of a virtual hotspot and look into it more and get more information in a very very personalized way. And I think that's where um, that's where the our hesitance around deploying things on people's phones, that barrier, I think, or that, that, that's now been, um, been sort of dismantled. And I think we're much more open to doing things in a, in, a ver in a different way that maximizes the potential of digital. So I think a lot of it comes down to the creativity of the people who are doing the interpretation and their ability to understand the, not just the limitations of, of the technology, but where its potential lies. And I think that, um, that you know, it offers us the ability to be more playful. It offers us the ability to give a more personalized experience, um, and and it allows us to think about what the critical er what the critical elements of a of a heritage visit are, and then how can we layer on top of that um, subjects and and areas that individual visitors may find really in some individual visitors may find really interesting, whereas others may be interested in other components. So, I think that's where. I think that's where we can really, really um, allow the expertise of the organization to shine and connect with the, with, with the visitors who want to find out about those, those particular elements in greater detail. Mm -hmm. And have you in in these um, uh, in rec recent years, maybe, and because in, in more specifically because of the current situation, um, have you collaborated with um, with other well people from maybe other disciplines? As this is. Um, you know, in my mind, and coming from from user experience, uh, design is something that um, you can create in a collaborative way with um, storytellers or um, you know um, digital designers. Um, is there this kind of collaboration in the you know, in the heritage context, or how do you create this new? How do you approach this new? Um, experiences or, or well, I call it experience design because that's my field I guess but like this new interpretation uh, with the, working with the digital and with the bring your own device concept. So I think we've done pockets of, uh, of really interesting engagements and, inter and, and sort of projects with, uh, with academics in the field of sort of computer human interaction or um, interaction design and, and these various things. In, in my career in the, ver in, the, in the museums I've worked with over the, the course of of my career, I've, I've done these projects um, with colleagues at the University of Limerick, um, with colleagues in Hong Kong, and uh, and and now in Hong Kong, uh, now in, in English Heritage, we've got uh, a relationship with the University of Sheffield and uh, and the project and the computer human interaction um, uh, academics there, um, and uh, you know those have been really successful 
exciting programs. Um, the one from uh, the one with Sheffield was part of the Mesh project, I think, which was material encounters in cultural heritage. And um, uh, I've, I've personally been involved in two of those projects, one of which was an English heritage project at Chester's Roman Fort, where we created uh, a kind of uh, digital but physical interactive that allowed people to create a personalized artifact um, or souvenir for themselves to take home at the end of their visit based on objects in the museum collection that they thought were really interesting um, and came with a little story. And that was really brilliant. Um, when I worked at the Hunt Museum in Ireland, we had a uh, uh, another um, uh, kind of trial uh, prototype from from the Mesh project, which was about um, kind of DIY technologies and allowing curators to create very personal and and very interesting um, interactives without actually requiring a lot of technical knowledge. And I think that that's that's been really important as well. You know, the, the, there are multiple barriers for these sorts of things. One is that um, you know, we curators tend not to be uh, particularly, I don't want to say technologically savvy, but confident programmers. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that there's a, there can be an apprehension around, around creating new things in digital technology because not everybody knows how to code. Um, but I think having the right partnerships mean that we can understand what, the, what problems we're trying to solve and then working with interaction design experts to solve them. So I think this is a really important area. I think that it would be great if there were more projects that were going on. And I think it would be brilliant to have um, a, a kind of a more sustained engagement across the heritage sector. Um, I think that, you know, I, I don't exactly know why um, there aren't more of these programs, but I, I suspect that they, you know, each heritage site or each organization you work with has very specific and, and requires almost a bespoke project um, and a bespoke product. And so that becomes a, a challenging thing to be able to scale because the, the solution for Chester's is very much based on kind of the design sensibility at Chester's, the, um, the, the way the museum operated, the history of the museum and the collection um, and everything. And, and so it's not easily transportable kind of whole hog to another site. Yeah. But I think that there's a lot of potential there. And I think if we approach things sometimes in a more thematic way, we may be able to, um, to be able to scale things in a way that we haven't necessarily, and I say we, I mean the sector, um, the sec we haven't necessarily been able to scale them in the past. I, I, think the, I, I think there's also, but I think the biggest barrier is probably the perception that the public have, or don't want their visit to a heritage site to be mediated through their phone. And I think that's always going to be a concern. And I think we should always be concerned about that as heritage professionals, because the more kind of distant the public are, visitors are from the actual brick and mortar or the stones of our sites, the less of a, a personal connection to the past that they're likely to develop. And that always must be, you know, at the heart of what we do is creating um, and helping to support people to create a personal connection with an element of the past or a story from the past that they find personally relevant. And so for me, that is a, that's always gonna be a core feature. For some people that can be, that process is gonna be facilitated by having a, a, digital, a digital tool. For other people, having, to, having a digital interface between themselves and the heritage is gonna kill that, is gonna kill that, um, kill that, that potential. And so what we need to do is, is be open to having a variety of approaches. I think what you're, 
your mention, the way you mentioned before about, you know, working with, um, I think you mentioned before working with sort of um, living history and, and actors um, and, and living history interpreters, I think was brilliant. Um, and of course, one of the challenges of working with living history interpreters is that they have to go home at the end of the day um, and you can't necessarily, and unless you can hire them full time on your site, they're, they're a temporary solution to a problem. I think that immersive technology offers a really, really exciting opportunity for us to think about how that can be deployed more regularly. I talked about also storytellers in a sense, not that necessarily they would be like living heritage um, uh, performers, but also um, kind of consultants on on how you can uh, structure a, an experience or you know uh, you, uh, do create a curation um, in in a way that you know tells a story so that it's not that much alienating for some of the visitors. Uh, but as you said before, I think also it's about creating this personal connection for each visitor. And this is also not only um, the personal, but personalized as well, perhaps, you know, having multiple ways of, of uh, walking through a site, depending on how its visitor wants to do that. Um, and uh, and I, I agree that there are not that many um, uh, patterns to use uh, because its site is specific, but also because I think there is lack of research uh, on how this, this design happens and how can we make it transferable or what elements of it can we make transferable in other sites. Um, um, so, yeah, I don't know if you want, if you want to add something to that. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. I think that, you know, I think, and you bring up a really interesting point, um, which I'm sorry I didn't engage with when you brought it up, which is about how to make these, you know, how do you deal with some of these stories that are right for some visitors and maybe not right for others. And yeah. I think we're seeing in terms of world history, in terms of global history, in terms of British history, in terms of English history at the moment, that there are some, some subjects which uh, I guess inspire um, a lot of debate. Um, and that, and there are some kind of and there are historical readings which have you know previously been accepted which are being questioned right now and you know quite rightly so i mean history as historians we know that history isn't a collection of facts it's an understanding of of the past and motivations of people and and the analysis of and try to understand the, the their motivations and the analysis of those motivations which make up history not kind of a, a bunch of things that can be memorized and read off um, and I think how we tell those stories needs to evolve in order to, you know, in order to match the same kind of evolution that takes place in academic history writing. And I think you're also right in bringing up the idea of storytellers helping to curate those journeys, because, um, you know, everybody's understanding of, of a particular, you know, sometimes there are multiple understandings of a particular event. I worked for many years in Northern Ireland, and I can tell you there that you know, history itself and what happened on a particular day in the past is a is a matter of hot debate. Um, even if that, uh, even if the the subject or the the date in question is you know a few hundred years ago, and I think um, we need to be very conscious. I think, and maybe more much more conscious than we are, of the ramifications in the present of the types of stories that we tell about the past. And I, I think that that's something that is you know really really important. Um, and I think that our visitors are increasingly asking and expecting more of us, as they should, 
Um, and I think how we, how we rise to that challenge is going to define and determine the, the relevance or the, the perceived relevance of the heritage sector, um, you know, for, in many year, for many years. So I think, you know, the, the more open we are to doing things differently and to listening to visitors and listening to ex other experts and, and to trying to, and not treating a heritage visit as a kind of, you know, as a kind of formula, I think, um, you know, I think we will we'll do, we'll do well to, to then maintain our relevance. And, and immersive, immersive tech, um, that's also a question, um, I guess has these, uh, gives these opportunities uh, and especially, especially in this kind of personalized um, narratives uh, to, for young generations or for generations that like for um, age groups, let's say that uh, do not go to museums and historic sites very, um, very often. Um, I think it's, is it like the, the 25 to 40 um, age group, if I'm not mistaken? I don't know, you probably know better. Uh, well, yes, I'd say most young people, I think we, we have our national youth engagement program was, was established in order to change the way English heritage does our work by incorporating young voices and young perspectives into it. Because based on the research that, that underpinned the project, most young people really don't give a pin about heritage. And they don't really see what it has to do with them, and it all feels a bit—it um, all feels a bit, you know, irrelevant. Um, and you know, I think when you compare, uh, when you look at, you know, the issues that young people find really compelling right now, you know, climate change, uh, inequality, you know, these are the sorts of things that they feel really passionate about, and that they are do mobilizing and doing things about. They feel like there's a real disconnect between those sorts of, of subjects, which they feel are really relevant to them, and going to a heritage site and learning about a king called Henry, who had a life and whose world was just feels just completely separate from theirs. But actually, um, you know, if we start evolving the way that we interpret our, these histories on our sites and talk about, you know, history from the ground up, as opposed to emphasizing our storytelling to, to tell the stories of kings and queens and other kinds of um, elite people, then I think we can start thinking about looking at and introducing the, the idea that inequality and exploitative labor practices are something going on for a long time. And then we start understanding the, you know, the currents which underpin and the long tail which underpins the, the things which are happening in our society today. And I think young people will start making, will start paying more attention because it is relevant. I, I think we just need to, we need to demonstrate why it's relevant. I think the burden is on us. And I think what you're talking about um, in relation to digital technology and immersive storytelling, I think we can draw those parallels by demonstrating them in the, in the digital realm. And if those are the stories that, that some people want to engage with, then, they, then you know, we need to make sure that they're available. And there will always be people who are interested in escaping to, to the past and, and we want to be helping them to do that as well because I think it's not for us to dictate what history and what heritage means and why it should be meaningful to everybody. I don't think there's any one reason why heritage is relevant. I think it's, you know, the nature of heritage is that it's something that we all get to define for ourselves. And I think as, a, as an organization which, you know, stewards the, the heritage of, uh, of England um, we need to recognize the the different ways in which that heritage is relevant, and also the the gaps um, 
in the in those stories that that we that we have and some of those gaps will be because um, certain stories or histories weren't particularly valued in the past and and so the the physical remnants that we're left with are not necessarily representative of all of the the kind of the plethora of heritages that existed in England either and I think there's a big question you know that we have to tackle which is what do we do about that you know how do we how do we deal with that and and I think digital certainly has something to offer us um, how we do that uh, you know is is another is just a really big question that you know I don't think I have the answer to um, but is a but I think we start we start coming around to to thinking creatively about how to explore and how to demonstrate the gaps um, and there are many many gaps I see I see there's a lot of um, there's a lot of points here um, you know when you when you speak about how how do we do that how, like I see interpretation being uh, broader and broader and encompassing more things and thinking about the youth and the and the um, and the issues they 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 uh, they care for um, and how to bring this in and also how to actually make it like in terms of you know tech uh, technical and, and financial even issues. Um, so what, I want to ask at this point: Do you do you see in the kind of a, in terms of the skill set of the of the curator? Um, is there kind of an extended skill set? Is there a new kind of skill set create, being created? Something that connects all of these? How how is that viewed in in the sector uh, in the latest years? Let's say. Gosh, that's a big question. Um, I think. I don't know if I, I certainly don't think I have the definitive answer to that, but I think that the biggest skill that is required of anybody in, in any kind of curatorial profession is under, is trying to understand, you know, trying to is being adaptable and not being overly precious about a particular methodology. You know, we, you know, we, we want to conserve things. We want to protect um, the heritage of the past. And, and I think that in the same way that, you know, um, the, the kind of um, uh, conserva buildings conservation has adapted over time and evolved over time to incorporate new technology in the way that they look at things. I mean, if you think about the, the field of photogrammetry, you know, that is a totally new way of thinking about and creating reconstructions. It's not something that existed, you know, 40, 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. Or at least I hope it didn't. Otherwise, I'm saying a fib on your podcast. But um, you know, but those fields have evolved and just kind of adapted and taken on the technology. I think that we're just a bit late to the party that everybody else has just kind of gone on with. And somehow, um, you know, as as curators, we haven't necessarily been kind of held to account um, and 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 told or forced to develop our digital skills. I think we have, but I think, you know, if you look at, if you look at the way collections management software has basically not evolved all that much in the last 20, you know, since I started my career, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you know, that's, that, that should tell you something. We, we don't have, there's no one kind of, you know, database protocol for collections. That means that in the same way that you know, libraries, you can search WorldCat to find a book. You can't search some kind of museum cat to find an object. And I think that we see, it's very easy to think, oh, well, how do we progress? And this is a very new thing. But other fields of, of heritage conservation, of, 
library science, archiving have all evolved. And, and the museum and heritage sector, I think, is allowed, has been allowed somehow to, to kind of lag behind. And I think we need to kind of lace our trainers up and, and try to catch up with everybody else. Um, and I think that there's a, I think there's a sense that, at least for me, kind of growing up, when I, was, I, went, when I went to university, I actually studied applied physics. So I, I've, my, my undergraduate degrees are in, in pure math and applied physics. So I have this engineering background. So I've always never, I mean, I feared programming because I was terrible at it. Um, but it's always been something that I felt was, was a part of what, what I should be doing. It seemed like a natural way of doing things. Mm-hmm. And I think in the, when I was working on my PhD, my, my, my colleagues didn't really feel as confident with programming or with technology or any of those things. And I think there was a sense that that was okay because we were, you know, art historians or historians. And I think it's kind of got to the point now where the whole world has moved on a little bit. And now museums or in this particular area of heritage really does need to catch up. Um, one of my teams uh, that, I, that I manage at English Heritage creates all the 3D architectural designs and reconstructions of our sites. And we've been having really exciting conversations over the last few weeks about how we're going to start really maximizing the potential of this work. So we're now using photogrammetry to, um, you know, to create architectural reconstructions. And we're looking now about deploying these, um, these reconstructions in our learning programs. And again, this is all part of a, a new digital turn that we're, that we're taking. I guess it's probably a long time after a lot of other sort of, um, a lot of other sectors have done this, but we're, we're catching up now. And, and I think that, you know, our, our focus is always on how we can do, how we can deliver for our visitors and for our users. And as a national heritage institution, you know, we have a responsibility to, to provide access to this, to the national heritage collection to everyone. And so if those are, those are the things which are, are driving us now, and, and I think they've always been driving us, but we're more focused than ever, I think, on, on serving our visitors and on serving. And I think that that is going to be the thing that gets us over the hump, um, that, that gets us into, you know, feeling much more confident and breaking down whatever barriers we feel are there between ourselves and, and the other side of the technology we want to be mastering. Great. Well, we're looking at, uh, at the big changes coming then um, in the sector. It would be nice to see. Um, thank you very much, Dominique. Um, that was really uh, great insight um, in, in the world of interpretation and digital interpretation. Well, thank you very much. Um, we're, the, yeah, we're, we're doing a lot of work to talk about the Agile Interpretation Program. We think it's got a lot of potential and we've learned a lot. So there's an article um, about it that'll be coming up in the uh, upcoming Association of Heritage Interpretation Journal. And then um, there's a should be an article in the in the in a museum's journal um, as well. So um, keep your eyes open, and I'll certainly let you know once those are published. Thank you, Dominique, and thanks to everyone who's been listening to this episode. For more episodes, stay tuned next week. Bye.